The internet is ubiquitous, as are the algorithms and programs which shape our experiences of it. They invisibly guide what ads we see, what search results we get, and what content is flagged as inappropriate in social media spaces. What is also invisible, though just as ubiquitous, is the human labor that holds it all up. A new book calls such labor ghost work, and it's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary. Mary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism and Film. Our guest today is computational social scientist and senior researcher at Microsoft Research AI, Siddharth Suri. He and anthropologist Mary Gray, a senior researcher at Microsoft Research are the authors of the new book, Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. Sid, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And just to get the ball rolling, could you talk about how the book came about? Um, the book came about uh, in kind of a interesting and coincidental way. Uh, I had been working on, I wanted, I was interested in conducting classical psychology style experiments. And I was working at Yahoo at the time. And, and typically these kinds of psych experiments are done with you know undergraduates in a laboratory, but at Yahoo, we didn't have any undergraduates and we didn't have any laboratories. Right. So, so necessity was the mother of all invention. And we, me and Duncan Watts and Winter Mason, we figured out how to put these experiments online. And we used crowdsourcing sites like Mechanical Turk. Um, for those who might not be familiar with these kinds of sites, it's just a place where someone can put up a job and workers can come and do that job for pay. And what we did was the job was our experiment and workers were our subjects and they could come and do them for, for pay. And I did that from about 2008 to, to well, really till now. But uh, if you fast forward to about 2012, I just joined Microsoft and Mary had heard about some of my work and she was in Boston at the time, and I was in New York at the time. She came down, and she said, hey, Sid, I hear you do a lot of work in this space of, of, of crowdsourcing and what's now called the gig economy. And I said, yeah. She said, would you like to write an ethnography of the workers? And I said, sure, let's do it. <laughs> you know, what's an ethnography? <laughs> you might want to change the order of those questions. <laughs> yeah, and uh, maybe I should have. And uh, But uh, it, it, it all worked out in the end. Um, and a little bit more deeper reasoning was I thought to my, myself, Mary's an anthropologist. I'm a computer scientist. We're at almost the same place. She was in Boston. I was in New York. At the same time, interested in the same thing. And I thought to myself, when is that going to happen again? Right. Let me let me let me jump on this and see, and see where it leads. Can Can you describe uh, an experiment or two that you you were you did with this, this online reference? Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll I'll describe my favorite um, cocktail party experiment, <laughs> uh, and it, it's the following. It's about the simplest experiment you could imagine. We told the workers, roll a six sided die. And if you don't have a six-sided die handy, we gave them a link to a website called random.org, which would roll one for you. And we said, whatever you roll, report the number, and we'll give you 25 cents times the number you rolled. <laughs> okay. So now, I can't tell if you, John, rolled a six 
or not. I can't tell if you're lying or not. But I know that if I get about, you know, a few hundred rolls, I know the general amount of lying in the population. Ah. And? And? So, and? That's pretty good. <laughs> it turned out people underreported ones and twos and overreported fives and sixes. And then what we did was we, we, you know, we changed the pay rate to see if that mattered. It didn't matter too much. But then the other thing we did was we said, okay, now roll a die 30 times and tell us all the rolls. And again, we'll give, we, we were going to give them uh, one cent times the sum of all the rolls. And it turns out the amount of lying goes way, way, way down. <laughs> and what we, what the, the inference and the conclusion was when you ask someone to roll a die 30 times, they're not going to say 36s because they know that you know they're lying. <laughs> <laughs> so they're going to try to, you know, uh, change it a little bit and, and, and if they are lying or, or just tell the truth. And um, so that was an example of, of probably the simplest experiment you could imagine. You called this, right, the gig economy, I think, when you're uh, responding to John. And uh, I believe Mary has called what's happening ghost work. Could you talk a little bit about how that yeah. term ghost work came about and, and maybe whether it has reshaped how you think about the experiences of people like your participants? In the book, we give a fairly technical definition of ghost work. We talk about work that is uh, shipped, built, managed, sourced through an API. But a little bit more colloquially, there's many um, apps, websites um, on the internet now that look completely automated. And what's actually happening is there's a fair amount of human labor behind them. And that's what we mean by ghost work. Um, for example, uh, when you look at your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed, why do you not see any hate speech? Uh, how, uh, in the case of Facebook, how come you don't see any adult content? Um, this is the internet. People will use it to say anything they want. So how do you get this you know, very sanitized view? And the answer is people training algorithms to sanitize your feed. Um, another example would be um, search engine rankings. Um, all the big search engine companies use humans to judge what is a better and worse so uh, search engine ranking algorithm. And so, but it doesn't appear that way to the end user. Search engines appear like they're completely automated. And that's where we came up with the term ghost work. Hmm. So, Sid, tell, tell us about how, how many workers are we talking about here? How, how big is this network? Yeah. And, what, and what's, what kind of people do this work? Okay, so it's really funny you asked me that last part of that last question. <laughs> what kind of people do this kind of work? When back when I was doing those psych experiments, I would have to explain to to the audience, you know, what is crowdsourcing, what is mechanical turf, and invariably after I would do it, someone would always raise their hand and say, "Well, who are the workers? <laughs> what kinds of people do this work?" And I would give them the, the sort of statistics and demographics, and they put their hand down. And then five minutes later, they'd always raise their hand again. And they would say, yeah, but who are they? And, um, and that's, that was kind of the genesis of this, this project mm -hmm. for me. Um, and so, um, so how big is this? There aren't a ton of great, um, there aren't a ton, there isn't a ton of great data measuring how big this population is. Mm -hmm. The best numbers that I can give um, was done by um, Pew, 
And they added a question into one of their surveys, and I, and I know this because Mary wrote the question, uh, about mm. um, have you ever, I, I forget the exact wording, but it was basically asking, have you ever done work through an API? Would they, have you ever done work through a website, through uh, a mobile phone app, and that kind of thing? And it turned out um, about 8% um, of the U.S. population, excuse me, it turned out about 8% of the U.S. working population had done a work uh, this way in the year prior to 2016. You know, I was I was curious about the generalizability sure. of, of results from this kind of work. I mean, so for example, when you when you talked about the uh, the rolling the six sided die and the and the yeah. lying, you know, could when you started to think about this, I'd say, well, gee, I wonder if it's the same if I looked at you know, uh, respondents of one age versus respondents of another, or respondents of, you know, from, from different different religious affiliation, country of origin, you know, you name the kind of stratification that you'd consider. I mean, some of the, looking at some of the work that you've done with, with ghost work, it, is it not the case that you tend to have, you know, generally younger participants in this economy and, and often more educated participants in this economy? Yeah. Um... So in the case of behavioral experiments and generalizability, uh, the way I look at it is um, in terms of shades of gray. So on the one hand, there's, you know, undergraduates in a laboratory who it's been studied that they are, quote unquote, weird in the sense, you know, Western educated from industrialized, uh, rich democratic nations. Um, one step away from that would be I would say MTurk workers and, and crowd workers mm. because they come from a more diverse age range, more diverse income bracket, uh, more diverse educational uh, background, et cetera. Now, is that perfect? No. no. Is, that a, is that a representative sample of the US? No. Is it a representative sample of the internet population? No. Is it maybe a step in the right direction? I would say yes. Um, so that's the way I think about that. Sure. So what exactly did you and Mary do in ghost work? I know that this is uh, based on research that was done in the United States and India. So could you talk a yeah. little bit about how you found the people you worked with, what it was like maybe for you to engage in ethnographic research? <laughs> yeah. Um, so what we did was, um, so we, we teamed up early on. And the, one of the first things we did was a, a fairly lengthy survey that we gave to workers and about their relationship to this kind of work. And at the end of the survey, by the way, we paid them for this for their time in, in, in answering the survey. And at the end, we said, would you like to be interviewed? Um, and so that was one place where we recruited. Um, another thing we had done uh, was, um, you know, in, in, traditional, in a lot of ethnographic work, I believe there's a, a pretty well-defined field site. Like if you want to study workers at a um, factory, for example, you just go to the factory. Yeah. But this is a distributed online platform. So what's the field site? I, that's kind of amorphous here. So what we did was we had a, a mapping task where we, it's about the simplest task you could imagine. We said to workers, please put, uh, put a pin in a, in a, on a Bing map wherever you happen to be right now, and we'll give you 25 cents. Hmm. And... Um, you know, it literally took like five mouse clicks. And, um, and you know, we got, you know, I think about 10,000 workers to do it. And it gave us the geographic distribution of, of the workers. 
And um, that helped Mary figure out where to interview people geographically. It turns out, you know, they're more popular in southern India than northern India. There's there, um, and then you know which parts of the United States to to to, to look at. Um, and so that was a good example, uh, w one example of the sort of interplay between her field and mine. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, you know, I could sort of map, geographically map the population as a whole, and that would allow Mary to focus in on, on, on certain areas to go interview people. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Siddharth Suri, senior researcher at Microsoft AI, about his book, Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. Sid, I'm, I'm interested in the, in the kind of global underclass, which was part of your the sub-title sub, uh, in the book. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like this is going to be a hard labor force to organize since most of this work is done, you know, there's no place where it's done. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I also wanted to talk about, and most of, I think I read somewhere where uh, a general description is a lot of these people are college educated and under 40. Mm -hmm. um, so what's what's the chances of, first of all, these folks organizing and also, is there any will in our political system to regulate this so these folks aren't exploited? And, uh, and I guess uh, the, my final part of this question is, who, who's, what company is doing this the right way and, and, uh, and what's, a, what's a good model? So, in, right, in terms of organizing the workers, um, there's there's an effort at, at at Stanford to provide exactly that. Um, there's also uh, been efforts um, out of um, uh, Germany to also uh, organize workers there. Um, and the way I think about it is the workers are the workers self organized to create these online communities mm. around these platforms and. They did this on their own time, on their own volition, on their own initiative. I, I, I think the answer is not to organize anything for them, but just to give them a, a little bit of a hand if, if, as they so need it mm -hmm. to, to organize themselves. Um, and I, I think that's kind of the right approach. Um, in terms of um, you know the political will, uh, one person I would point out who's thinking very forwardly in this space is uh, Senator uh, Mark Warner. I believe he's oh. from Virginia, oh. and um, he's he's he, he's got some very advanced thinking on this. And um, but there's another thing I want to point out. I think the way I've been thinking about it, I think there's three directions, three ways to make progress here. One is is through 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 the governments as as we just discussed, and that is great because it would be you know broad impact and, 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 and lasting in the legal system. The second, as you mentioned, would be, you know, having the workers organize themselves. And then the third is something I'm, I just started looking into was, well, what about the requesters? What about the people putting the jobs on these mm -hmm. platforms? Largely, by and large, I've interviewed, uh, me and my team have interviewed almost 100 of them. Mm -hmm. And by and large, they want to do the right thing. Yeah. And they want to give the workers a fair deal. But they just need a little help in doing that. For example, say you wanted to hire a programmer in Romania. Well, what's a fair wage for that person? Mm -hmm. 
like that's a hard question and and i as a developer i i don't have that information readily at hand so right. can we give them a little bit of help to figure that out mm-hmm. and then um the third part of your question was who's doing it well um in in the in the second to last chapter of the book we talk about a, a few companies doing it well um uh, one would be Lead Genius. Um, one thing they do well is they hire groups of people that, that actually know each other and have working relationships already. Oh. Mm-hmm. And they even have a path to promotion. Okay. Um, um, so, so that would be one example. Um, another example in that, in that chapter would be uh, Cloud Factory, who they were based in Nepal. And when that uh, very tragic and horrific earthquake hit, mm-hmm. they, they, they mobilized their entire team to help the country and their, their workers and their families. Um, so there are there are people in this space, uh, and, and, and a third example we give in that chapter would be Amara. Uh, they do um, uh, a video uh, transcription and captioning and translation, mm-hmm. and um, they're they're sort of a part volunteer, part paid organization. They're 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 working very well. So so we do describe uh, a few platforms that are that are doing things uh, quite a bit better. You know, I was I was curious when I was thinking about the what you guys were talking about and the idea of of labeling observations being a big part of what's going on with this this type of work group what would you like people that are working in data science and you know thinking about machine learning methods and predictive modeling yeah. methods to know about this workforce or to appreciate about how the methods that they they're building rely yeah. on this workforce it's common in machine learning and data science to come up with a new algorithm and then look for benchmark data sets to test your algorithm and compare it to the state of the art. Mm-hmm. And that's the common workflow. And I, what I would like computer scientists and data scientists to realize is that data set was made by humans. And think about and when it's time to construct that data set, think about what's the best way to do it what's the best way you know to mitigate biases what's the best way to make sure the humans are getting a fair deal um etc cetera, etc cetera, and bring those humans into the con- into the computational pipeline instead of just saying okay you give me the data set and i'll munge it why don't we just take a holistic view and say okay this is a data set it was brought about in this way is this valid for the research question i'm studying if so, great. If not, can we modify it? Can we augment it? Should we throw it out and start over? W- what do we do? So I'm, I'm curious, have, have you or Mary ever participated in this work? Oh, uh, I mean, like, absolutely. Um, so um, I've, I've spent time as a worker doing work on uh, some of these platforms, especially Mechanical Turk, just because I wanted to understand things from their perspective. I, I also have been an MTurker. I did it in grad school as a side hustle uh, sometimes. So, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> and actually, I learned about it from a research talk at Indiana University. <laughs> so, so how long was you remember who gave that talk? By, any chance? Oh. What did I? No, I don't remember who gave the talk. Honestly, uh, it's been so many I'll years. You, I'll bet you a hundred dollars it was Winter Mason, and um, because he was a graduate of, of Indiana, and and he and I and Duncan kind of 
for early adopters here. So it's very possible. It's very possible. (laughs) I do. I do want to ask you a question about doing interdisciplinary research like this. Um, You are a computational social scientist or a computer scientist, however you want to to call Mm -hmm. yourself. I've seen I've seen those both those labels. And then Mary is an anthropologist. Um, And so what were some of the challenges of bringing these two sort of different perspectives to explore the experiences of these workers? So I've been very fortunate in my career. Um, I started doing interdisciplinary work back in grad school, and I didn't even know it. Um, I was doing, you know, I was my PhD is in computer science. I was doing behavioral experiments with people. Uh, what we would do is we'd put them in a network, we'd have them play a game, and then we would change the structure of that network, have them play again, and try to figure out how does the structure of that network affect their behavior. Um, and I continued that through my postdoc. And then at, at Yahoo, we were a very interdisciplinary group um, of, of, of sociologists, uh, physicists, uh, marketing scholars, uh, political science, economics. That, that interdisciplinary lab then moved over to Microsoft and kept the same kind of interdisciplinary vision and perspective. So I've been kind of living the interdisciplinary dream for for mm-hmm. for quite some time uh, nonetheless um yeah there were some 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 challenges here uh for example uh, i think a big challenge is the language barrier um every field has their own jargon mm-hmm. um, it's a way to signal that you're an insider versus not mm-hmm. and when you work with someone doing interdisciplinary work you have to work with someone who's going to speak in plain english and avoid that jargon, and therefore you can actually establish a base of communication. And and Mary certainly has that quality. Mm-hmm. Sid, uh, there are two two journalists at this table here, and mm-hmm. and uh, I'd like to ask. I'll ask a two part instead of a three part question. I'm trying to trying to ease, ease up. He was very good at remembering the three parts. Taxi, so, <laughs> so one would be. Um, how how are journalists doing in covering this topic of ghost workers and in the stories that you see covered? And and the second part is are there are they missing stories? Because the journalist's job, of course, is to take this complicated work that's going on and try to make it understandable to the general public. So, so yeah, journalists, I would say in the last few years, journalists have been covering this more and more. And and I think a common refrain in in the way it's covered is about you know uncovering the hidden workers and exposing the issues and problems that those workers face. That's a fine approach. What are they missing? Mm-hmm. And I, what they're missing, I think, are two things. And first, a lot of workers do this work because it fits into their life oh, and it yeah. fits the social constraints of their life. Mm. Um, a lot of workers, for example, want to be able to scale up or scale down how much work they do in a given week. Mm-hmm. A lot of workers want to choose who they work for or what they work on. And so this work allows them to do that. The second thing I think they're missing is, and we, we tackle this in the book kind of head on, mm-hmm. this work can be kind of dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, yeah. like 
it's like I go to a platform, I put up a task, workers come and do it. It's like the workers almost feel like interchangeable cogs to me. Mm-hmm. And that's a downside. And, 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 and journalists have certainly uncovered that. But there's actually also an upside to it. And we, we, we talk about it in the book. And that is, I now can't be discriminated against. So say I'm part of some discriminated class, whether that's part of my race, gender, um, sexuality, religion, whatever. If people online just know me by a unique identifier, they don't know all that about me, and therefore they can't discriminate against me. And that's a hidden upside that yeah. that I don't that I think is largely missing. And mm-hmm. and um, Mary uncovered that with some of her interviews, where yeah. she uncovered uh, she spoke to uh, Muslim women. Mm-hmm. Um, in India, for whom working outside the home was looked down upon, yeah. and they did this kind of work to skirt that social constraint. Mm-hmm. Oh, very interesting. So, Sid, what's next for you? You know, what's next for me? <laughs> I've spent the last few months working on that. Um, one of the things I would like, one of the things I'm starting to work on is um, I'm sort of going back to my experimental roots, and I'm trying to understand empathy. Oh. Mm. Oh. Um, and I, th- I was once at a presentation by Bill Gates. I was one of the, you know, thousand people in the audience and, and he, and he gave his presentation and he took questions and, and I asked them and I, 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 I waited my turn in line and I grabbed the mic and I asked them, you know, what's the biggest problem facing humanity today? But then I also asked, what's the biggest problem facing humanity today that people in this room can solve? What I meant was, you know, Bill Gates has infinite resources. I have very, very, very finite resources. So what's the biggest problem I can solve? And I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what's the biggest problem facing humanity that I could try to solve. And where I came up with that was, was empathy. Can I figure out ways to help people empathize with each other? For example, can I help people empathize for those with less money? Can I help people empathize for those who are from a different race or, or sexuality? Um, that kind of thing. And that's where I'm going next. Oh, boy, that sounds like a great wow. topic for a future episode. It you got to keep, yeah. keep us in the loop, Sid. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Very. Sid, thank you so much for talking with us today. This has been really interesting and good luck on the new project. Thanks, I'll need it. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Thank you.